I'm Kyle Simon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times? And how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Consminds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 58, we read The Conservative Mainstream by Frank S. Meyer, published in 1969. Frank Meyer was born into a German-Jewish household in 1909 in Newark, New Jersey. He attended Princeton for one year before transferring to Oxford University. And while in England, he joined the Communist Party. He returned to the United States as a communist apparatchik and actively recruited new members for the Communist Party. His views began to change while serving in the U.S. Army during World War II. His shift continued as the Cold War began, and he eventually joined William F. Buckley's National Review, where he contributed for decades. Later, he helped found the American Conservative Union. He's credited with synthesizing the traditionalist and libertarian strains within conservatism. He converted to Catholicism later in life. And he died in 1972. All right, this book is really a collection of essays written by Frank Meyer during the 1950s and 60s. Each essay is packed with pretty good podcast fodder we found, so we limited ourselves to just a handful of them. So, you know, possibly we could return for more down the road. I'll personally be honest, I wasn't really familiar with Frank Meyer before reading this collection, but a listener reached out to Kyle and made this recommendation, and so we want to thank you for that. Turns out that Meyer actually played a pretty substantive role in the early conservative movement, and in particular pioneered this idea of combining the traditionalist and libertarian strains of conservatism into one united theory. So... Maybe we'll start there. Uh, He says in this essay entitled Freedom, Tradition, Conservatism, there's a division between conservatives who focus on freedom and the innate importance of the individual, what we may call the libertarian position, and those who stress value and virtue and order, what we may call the traditionalist position. And then he, he, I think we're going to discuss now, but he spends a lot of time sort of discussing those. I this was a little bit interesting. It was pretty interesting for me because I think we were born basically into the post Reagan era where we had the three legs of the Reagan stool, you know, fiscal conservatives, which basically here would be the libertarians, the social conservatives, which here would be, you know, the traditionalists by and large, and then national security conservatives. And my guess is Meyer had, uh, quite a few essays on national security too, which we didn't get into, but the anti-communism. Yeah, we're kind of born into the world that this uh, idea created. That, you know, so it, it might have seemed more revolutionary in the '60s the idea that libertarians and traditionalists would have anything in common. And we're we see we're seeing now, um, you know, in the in the post-Reagan era, how that coalition frays at times. I thought I thought these essays were interesting because it sort of reminds us of why we're in the same party. And why we're why the conservative movement, even beyond the Republican Party, is is a, kind of a broad tent that encompasses some people who you wouldn't think are the same. 
Mm-hmm. So in this first essay, he talks about how we need we need tradition, but we also need reason. And uh, he discusses the flaw in liberalism, which kind of is the same flaw that uh, Patrick Deneen discusses in his more recent book. As it developed and, and grew and, and the strength of the free market and limited government became you know, more accepted and, and more powerful, the utilitarianism of those things, of, of, of free market economics, undermined the foundations of the moral order. And But in Meyer's telling, the moral order, you know, the, the old traditions and, you know, just the whole wisdom of generations of the, the Burkean conservatives is the sort of the soil that liberty and individualism has to grow in. And mm-hmm. without that, it becomes unmoored and utilitarian and, you know, can lapse into all sorts of bad effects. So he discusses also in this essay, you know, what is the ultimate end of, of politics? So, you know, in the political realm, freedom is the ultimate end. And we, we've discussed this before. Like, is it just about getting freedom or is it about freedom to do something good? And he says, you know, mm-hmm. in the political realm, that's as far as it goes, freedom. Um, and that's that's definitely more of the libertarian position. In the moral realm, you know, once we leave government and that sort of thing and to get into the individual conscience, freedom is just the means. Freedom is the means by which men can search out their proper end, virtue. So, you know, they're both true, the traditional angle that virtue and good living is the highest end. But also, you know, in, as far as government can give us anything, I don't think he he's certainly of the view that government isn't going to give us virtues. And we'll get into why later in the podcast. But he's saying that, you know, the best government can do is give us the, the freedom. And it's up to us to find the virtue after that. But the, the two need each other. Mm-hmm. So he says liberals and libertarians reject this absolute truth of virtue because they make a, they sort of make the same mistake. He says they could not distinguish between the authoritarianism with which men and institutions suppress the freedom of men and the authority of God and truth. Yeah. I thought that that was a good insight is sometimes you see among libertarians, they, they want to reject all authority the way a lot of us did when we were younger, I think, but it, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily just a young man's idea. I think a lot of, People even within our conservative movement don't want anyone telling them what to do, you know. And right. much, much as I get that, um, I think Meyer's drawing a distinction between government telling you what to do and the existence of a truth that should inform your decisions. Yeah, and for listeners, there there may be some an element of like navel gazing in some of this, but I actually do think it's it's timely for our present moment in America because. I mean, this is an this is a really active debate, and we just read a book by Reno. You know, we've obviously the essay from So Rabamari and Patrick Deneen. There is a strong movement towards in in contemporary conservatism. You know, a movement towards taking a, a strong stronger turn and larger emphasis on on the traditionalist side of of the Republican Party, and not just from a social conservative as far as like abortion and guns and gay marriage sort of thing. But, but a fundamental rethink of what does it mean to be conservative? And, you know, their argument really is that the libertarian wing, let's say of the, of the Republican party has, has, has really been driving the ship for the last quite a few years um, Mm -hmm. during the Bush administration. And even, even with Trump, 
you know, obviously he's not a traditional conservative really in any way, but, and, and, but he's not a libertarian either, clearly, but at the same time, a lot of his, a lot of his accomplishments really have been kind of more that those libertarian accomplishments, right? The tax cuts, which a huge victory, the deregulatory agenda, um, mm-hmm. ref, you know, for reforming regulations. That's really been a victory of the, the, let's call it the fiscal wing or the here they'd say the libertarian wing of the Republican party. The Paul Ryan wing has had a lot of successes even with Trump uh, and has kind of been at the helm in the last like couple of decades. And so now I think there's a much more active debate about, well, these guys have driven us into the ditch and what we need is a a fundamental rethink. And I think our conversation with Gerald Rossello the other day, I mean, really highlighted some of this too in the reading, our reading with um, uh, Reno, because much of Reno's, I mean, his, his culprit, he takes aim at the left, but he also takes serious aim at, at fiscal conservatism, like the libertarian wing. And so I think this is a really active debate. I mean, what, what will the Republican party look like post Trump? And Mm -hmm. especially with the demographic change in the Republican party, I mean, even, even as early as five or six years ago, if you had a college degree, you were much more likely to be Republican. Now you're much more likely to be Democrat. And if you're white working class, you're without a college degree, you're more likely to be Republican. So there's, there's really even demographic changes. And so how does that change what the emphasis might be? So I think that, you know, there might be a little bit of navel gazing, but it actually is a pretty serious and, and relevant debate today. I don't know what you think. Yeah, no, I think I, as I was reading it, I mean, you could definitely see echoes of the the uh, French Amari debate and and a lot of the other you know modern conservative thinkers who were having the same conversation. I think part of it's what you said. We've had the victories on the one side, and maybe that's because it's easier to have libertarian victories because that's more about the realm of government. Mm-hmm. So all you have to do is win the election, and I mean. Apparently it's more than that because we often win elections and don't pass laws but <laughs> so, when to the extent that they do. And, you know, the, the two things you talked about are sorts of things that, that the president should be trumpeting more in his reelection campaign, especially the deregulation. which No one talks about, but it's been a huge help for every sort of small Absolutely. business, big business, oh, every size of business. It's been a big part in the job creation that, that's, that happened before the pandemic and that's a libertarian victory, um, right? I mean, deregulation is, that's definitely something that is about fiscal conservatism, liberalism, liberal, liberal, sorry, libertarianism. And I won't say it's easy because the, I mean, you've seen the Supreme Court strike down some of the administration's rulemaking because they didn't follow the Administrative Procedure Act the right way and all these different notice and comment periods. But when they actually get it right and follow all the, you know, dot the I's, cross the T's, they're doing a great service from that that one wing of the party mm-hmm. all right so now what i think is what social conservatives are asking the traditionalists the uh the russell kirk wing in in myers day and that's harder right i mean that's like because then again we're back to the debate is it government's job to to promote virtue mm-hmm. and i think even even within the fusionism of of meyer we're not we still have the the libertarian the, the libertarian half of that fusion is that mostly it is not and he has some exceptions i think he certainly thinks the government should be 
more active in opposing communism, even to the extent that it rolls over some free speech rights. He talks about that in one of the later essays here. But what or how can the government give us virtue? And I, I think for the most part, he would say they can't. Mm-hmm. You know, he says that part of the the reason that conservatives need to be into need to love virtue and transcendent truth is that you, in order to choose virtue and in, in order to accept whatever transcendent truth there is out there and live the good life in the Aristotelian sense, <clears throat> you have to choose it. It can't be something that is just following a law. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I mean, especially in the religious context, that's true. You know, if you just, if they passed a law that required, you know, whatever your favored religion is to just go out and convert the whole country, are you really, are you making anyone better by that? You know, I mean, if you're, if you're forcing people to get baptized, that's not a true baptism. Right. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're forcing people to live by the Ten Commandments or whatever other religious strictures, they're not really any more virtuous than they were before. They're just trying to avoid jail. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of the intent matters in virtue because maybe because that intent is what forms us and makes us into the better person, not just the following of the laws, but the wanting to follow the religious and spiritual ideals. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, I think it is relevant because it's, it's, it circles us right back to the conversation we've been having here and which conservatives are having across the country. We've had the libertarian victories. There's certainly room for more of them. You know, there's certainly more regulations that could be revised or repealed. There's there's a government that's doing too much in a lot of areas still. But it's like uh, when Reagan came in and cut taxes, the top rates were 70, 80%, you know. Mm-hmm. Now if somebody runs on tax cuts, I think we're still being taxed too much, but it's not the same too much. You know, it's not, right, right, you know, yeah. cutting it from 39 to 37 is not the same as cutting it from 90 to 37. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's where we're going now. I think it was the same, it's kind of the same question he was asking back here in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So you use, you use this word fusionism, and apparently that's that was, the word was invented by Brent Bozell as a critique, kind of as of Frank Meyer. But the idea is it's a fusion. It, it's kind of a goofy, clunky word, I think. But it's a fusion of libertarian and traditionalist points of view like we've been talking about. So he says, as you've described, from the traditional side, we get the kind of social conservatism, the opposition to relativism and materialism, and a, a belief in something bigger and in absolute truth. And from the libertarian side, it's a principled, he says, limitation of the power of the state. But they both have their shortcomings if you're going to go into the extremes. And so he says, contemporary libertarians tend to forget that in the moral realm, freedom is only a means whereby man can pursue their proper end, which is virtue. And again, we had this conversation with Gerald the other day as we were talking about the Reno book. I, I thought I thought Reno was pretty unfair to Milton Friedman. You know, it, it really was a critique of, let's call it the libertarian frame of mind that mm-hmm. that morality is not the realm of government. And that, you know, Friedman's agenda really was to get all morality out of, I guess, out of our lives. But it's, it's more like, let's get it out of the the hands of the state. Because as, here, here's what here's what Meyer will say, traditionalists of the past respected the authority of God and of truth as conveyed in tradition, 
but too often they imbued the authoritarianism of men and institutions with the sacred aura of divine authority. Uh, looking to the state to promote virtue, they forgot that the power of the state rests in the hands of men. And again, it's a conversation you and I have had a, a dozen times by now that on the one hand, I think we both feel kind of a, a pull in that direction of sort of like, we do, we do need a, we do need a, a, a strong moral order. Mm-hmm. And in, in our society, we need to promote virtue. But there's also, there's a tug and a pull there because at the same time, we also know that it's, as Meyer says here, the power of the state rests in the hands of men. And that makes it very dangerous. And going back to the Sarabamari, we got some, uh, some listener pushback on that one. But I think that it's, it's not that I don't see value in what uh, Amari was arguing as far as like having a stronger no-holds-barred attack on the, I guess, the, the anti-traditionalist, anti-religious elements in, our, um, in America. But I think the, the problem is like when you go that next step further and establish, I guess, a Catholic theocracy <laughs> yeah. is what seemed what it seemed like that's what he was trying to argue for. And maybe, maybe uh, I don't want to put words in his mouth. Maybe that's going a little bit too far, but there is got to be a middle ground where, and I, I, I really enjoyed Meyer's discussion here because like, as you and I've discussed so many times, there's in, in conservatism, it's like do this, but not too much. That's, that's what you've said before. And I think is really mm-hmm. wise. It's, and we need freedom, but not, you know, we, we need, we need uh, the promotion of virtue, but not so much that you're no longer choosing, you know, it's not so much that it's no longer actually virtuous to do a certain action because you're compelled to do it. And on the other hand, you, we want to have as much freedom as possible, but, but there are limits to that as well. You can't go so far. And so it's like being a conservative is making a decision to fall somewhere on that spectrum. And, and there's going to be inconsistencies and there's going to be some contradictions because we're going to do this, but not too much. And we're going to do that, but not too much as well. Right? Yeah. And it's part of, it's part of just the anti-utopian sentiment in conservatism is that we, we kind of know that it's about balance. And I think most people instinctively view life as about balance. Yeah. yeah. Not as about extremes. Um, and you know, there's, there's occasion to be extreme. You know, when, like Goldwater said, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. That's true. But then once you've secured that liberty, what do you do with it? That's, I think, where a lot of the balancing is, is has to come in. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, I don't think a podcast like this isn't really necessary for other theories because they are more utopian and there is more of a straight answer on what does it mean to be right uh, yeah a progressive what does it mean to be an objectivist you know there's there's books you know if you're you want to be a communist you read the communist manifesto and you know the lenin's works that came after and, and things like that you know there there's a lot of real extreme answers in there but there are answers and it's easy i mean well it's easy to figure out what the answer is mm-hmm. um making it work turns out to be uh, <laughs> not easy it's impossible yeah but with, yeah, that's why we have to, um, it's a sort of a perennial struggle to figure out, okay, now we've got this freedom. Should we go this way? Should we go that way? Should we nudge it this way? You know, that's like George Will's book, Statecraft as Soulcraft. 
You know, mm -hmm. I think he was kind of continuing this conversation as, as Reagan had just come into office and we had a lot of those early deregulatory and, and tax cut victories and rolled back some of the excesses of the great society programs. You know, it's like, okay, but now what? Um, mm -hmm. it, what worries me now is that I don't think there is any, how do you build up that, those institutions that could take over now if government got out of the way? And it was already, he already described the world in 1969 as a revolutionary world. Yeah. If, if anything, that revolution has been won by the other side. So, I mean, conservatism is now existing in an even more revolutionary world and we're seeing it on the streets now, but even just in the, even before the riots and protests, there's the mass media is drinking deep in the, the revolutionary sentiment, you know, the, the absence of absolute truth. You know, that's, if you, if you watch mainstream television and books and things, you know, people who believe in absolute truth are the villains. Right. That's, that's the world we're living in. So where, if, and I'm with you, I think I, I, I fear putting that power in the government's hands, but where else do we go at this point? There, at least in his day, there was, there were people like Billy Graham and, and Fulton Sheen. And, you know, I think, well, I think Sheen might've been dead by then, but you know, there, there were religious figures who had mass followings. Uh, who could at least talk to their flock about virtue? Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's a similar. I mean, who's out there now? Joel Osteen? I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't see the same, the same sort of religious figures who had a following even beyond their own denomination. I don't. Yeah. I don't see that as much. Maybe we're just waiting for the next one, but I don't know where he's going to come from. That's that's a really great insight, and because I think you're right, there's there's a tremendous thirst for it right now, and partially i think it's a thirst for religion i think though i mean if you look at a lot of the those voters who shifted to trump like white working class non non-college a lot of them are nominally religious but really are not church attenders mm -hmm. but there's still a desire to have that kind of heritage and home and and knowing who you are and your place in the world and so i I, I just really agree that there's, there's a real thirst for it right now that maybe, maybe there hadn't been in the past. And, and frankly, those folks, the libertarians that I know who I would really call like big L libertarians or whatever, throughout the two thousands, these guys have been, been Republican, but more and more, I, th I think few, fewer and fewer of them are Republican. And so many more of them are, I mean, they hate Trump and they're, they are, exciting with Democrats and which is just a really, I guess to me is pretty extraordinary. Uh, I, I don't know how you call yourself libertarian, but I guess they feel like they've, they've achieved the victories on with conservatives on the economic Liberty side, or at least they've gone made, made tremendous progress. And so now that they're going to refocus on, I guess on the social and kind of tearing down of traditionalist point of view and, so I think that to me, I, I don't know if you've noticed that, but I feel like I've really noticed that, that libertarian I used to view as more or less Republican. And now I mm -hmm. definitely don't. <laughs> yeah. And I, I wonder how much of that's going to last beyond the current president too. Cause I think a lot of that's fueled by just yeah people who probably. don't like him personally, just the way he is, you know, I mean, some, some people love the way he punches back. Other people are really repelled by it. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that 
both sides are obsessed with it. So, so it, it kind of takes all of the, and, and that's taking all the conversation up is, you know, you see what the president did, you see what he said, you see what he tweeted. Yeah. And we're not talking about what's behind it and what, like things like this, you know, what, okay. Yeah. I know he, he said a curse word, but what do we, what does it mean? <laughs> what does it, where does it go? What, yeah, what is exhausting. it in service of, you know? Yeah. It's, oh, he, he used this outdated term. Okay. I mean, he's an old man, you know, but what is it in service of a goal of building up American freedom or preserving Western civilization and, and tradition? Or is it not? And that, that we're not having this conversation. I think a, a friend of ours, uh, actually the guy who introduced us uh, at the beginning of this podcast tweeted yesterday that he, he sees the uh, sort of the decline in intellectual conversation is no, neither side is even pro- proposing constitutional amendments anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's the sort of thing that um, if you were really thinking about the limits of Liberty and, and how to increase it in some areas, that that's what you would be doing. Instead, we're just, we're fighting over judges and we're yelling at each other on Twitter and even Congress just yells at each other. They don't even really pass laws at all. So I wonder, yeah, I mean, maybe in a year or in five years, there'll be a different president and maybe, you know, maybe the changes that have been happening now, like you talking about people leaving the right and making common cause with the left. I wonder if some of it will spring back or maybe the, the parties are forever changed, but I think for conservatism itself, I, I think what Meyer's talking about here is, is it's hard to escape that as part of the core of conservatism, this dual allegiance to virtue and freedom. Yeah, which superficially seems as though it's just pure inconsistency, unmoored, you know. But in fact, it is moored. But the, it's a constant challenge to sort of say a little bit of this now, a little bit more, and based on the you know the issues at hand. But so we also read this essay, "Separation of Powers," that I kind of wanted to read, and he has he's a little bit of a conversation about Christianity. In in our season one, we had we had a conversation about this, I think, several times. But it's worth returning to now. He says, The Christian understanding of the nature and destiny of man is the foundation of Western civilization, always and everywhere what conservatives strive to conserve. That understanding accepts the existence of absolute truth and good, and at the same time recognizes that men are created with the free will to accept or reject that truth and good. Conservatism demands both the struggle to vindicate truth and good and the establishment of conditions in which the free will of individual persons can be effectively exercised. And we had a similar conversation with McIntyre too, but, but we had several of these conversations in, in our first season. The question that I had then kind of still stands now, and in, in fact, in some ways, it's a little bit more urgent. Meyer is arguing that Christianity is the foundation of Western civilization, something that I totally agree with, and I'm sure I'm guessing you do too. Mm-hmm. But he says it's always and everywhere what conservatives strive to conserve you know the existence of absolute truth and good and i wonder is that changing and i mean if i think that there's a strong argument that in conservatism and we've read several books that having having some sort of higher order of values and ideas have consequences which are richard weaver and so forth we i think we agree that it that it does matter but is christianity the foundation of the of conservatism at this point and and as as things change, I feel like obviously those on the left are moving further and further away from 
from this and you know what is the i don't know what is what is the what is the future of of conservatism is there is there room for let's say atheist conservatives i mean he's making this argument in 1962 and it was almost kind of a no duh self-evident mm-hmm. thought but yeah. these days it might be an open question i don't know what do you think i yeah i think you're right i think there was i think now in the same way that we've in our lifetime seen catholics and protestants getting on the same side of issues you know who used to be enemies mm-hmm. now i think you're seeing not just anyone who believes in any god being on one side at times but even yeah i think even atheists who believe in absolute truth you know are are finding some of the woke excesses to be troubling and i'm not saying they're going to start voting republican tomorrow although so, i mean there are atheist conservatives because I, I i know some but it's i i think anybody who like you know, there was this letter this week against or last week against um cancel culture and about the idea that you know so much debate is being just shut down and this is mostly an inter-left dispute but a lot of the people who signed it were the old lefties the many of whom are atheists who are now seeing the denial of honest debate which is itself a denial of a search for truth mm-hmm. and saying that you know i mean they're not going to go so far as to say republicans were right they'll never say that but they'll they'll look and say you know now they and catholics and protestants and jews are all kind of on the same side of you know we should be able to discuss these things publicly yeah, yeah. you know it's pretty it, fascinating yeah it, it's it's wild because you know you, you noam chomsky's on this letter that was in harper's and i'm like uh you know there's not a lot of days i'm going to agree with chomsky that's <laughs> that's that's out there but when you're right you're right and i think he's right and i think he's maybe now seeing and of course it's the effect of the revolution that that those guys put into place you know they shouted us down and now they find themselves being shouted down yeah okay but i think that that does show that there's you know for people who believe in truth and virtue whether it be something given us by god or something given us by nature or something just about the way things work and that is universally true a transcendent truth anyone who believes in that i think can be conservative if mm-hmm. I, I think at this point it's not even a religion versus irreligion divide it's about relativism versus truth i like that i like the way you put that there because it's also relevant to our conversation about libertarian versus traditionalist because i think at least most of the libertarians i know are are atheists or agnostic and probably during frank meyer's time when he in the 60s when he's writing this libertarian meant like de-emphasize god now I base I think it basically means you don't believe and uh, or mm-hmm. you know or agnostic and so is there room for folks like that to return? But I, I like the way you just described it. I mean, you don't have to necessarily believe in or have a tremendous faith in God, but just but you probably do have to have some sense that there is there is some objective moral order out there somewhere. There is some metaphysics that. Uh, that we can all identify and uh, I guess abide by to make society better and that sort of thing. But again, that's, uh, that's tough and you are kind of reaching um, a little bit for straws. And I think that mm-hmm. again, I go back to Milton Friedman cause I, I, I'm a fan and I guess probably what he would say is, yeah, we probably do need that, 
but the government is just not the that's not the avenue to find it what we need is like people are gonna have to find it on their own and then or what works for them and what works best and probably conservatism we're just gonna have to think bigger like what what you've just described i think i like what you what you said i mean think more broadly about how to accept hey you know you don't you don't believe in Christianity. That's fine. We still need judges who are, mm-hmm. who are, uh, allowing, a, a you know, a private sphere of, of, of faith and, and belief in a moral, moral order. And can we agree on that? And I think, yeah, there's definitely space for agreement on that. Front. Yeah. I think you've got to believe in something that's true. That's bigger than yourself that you yourself can't change. Yeah. I think, and that doesn't have to be father, son, and the Holy ghost. It could be all sorts of other, you know, uh, touchstones of truth and reality, but as long the problem is when you don't have that, I think that's when you get into the sort you can twist anything anyway. And it's mm-hmm. like how, how Solzhenitsyn talked about, how, you know, to do evil, you must first convince yourself that you're doing good. Yeah. And if you don't have any touchstone that's greater than yourself, there's no one to call you out on that and say, yeah. hey, that's not what, you know, that's not what we actually believe. You know, that's, that's the opposite. You're, you're just going off the track if there's no track you can do anything and and eventually people will do anything that's the argument of this contemporary sort of uh critical theory that um that we're just stuck in right now that obviously the mm-hmm. mainstream media has bought in wholesale wholesale but it, the argument that they're making really at its core is there is no truth and so all we all we have in front of us are power relationships and so let's fight with you know, with fire. And, and so you kind of understand someone like Saurabh Ramari, who's like, you know, they're fighting dirty and we've got to fight dirty back. Yeah. And, but, and, and, and that's the criticism of David French because, you know, French maybe isn't so uh, aggressive or no holds barred. Uh, and on a, I guess, real politic level, you're kind of like, yeah, I, I, I agree with that, but we see how that is playing out in America right now. And it is ugly it is just so ugly if everything is only a power relationship then we have a we have a long road of of ugly ahead of us yeah i mean if all of this is power versus power then then man is no better than a beast Absolutely, and then yeah. there's no reason to treat each other ourselves better than beasts if that's what we believe yeah it's it's uh disheartening and i think but i think you can see most people i don't think most people believe that I mean, I think it's it's too cynical for most people. And even if, I mean, we you know when we read uh, Dreyer's book, uh, the Benedict Option, he talked about how a lot of people are just wishy washy on religion. Like they say they believe in something, but it's just this sort of I forget what he called it, like therapeutic theism, deism. Yeah, that, yeah, that you know. <laughs> but at least that's something, and it's something. It's something you can start with because a lot of the therapeutic deism is extremely. Uh, there's no rules, you know. It's just like oh, it'd be nice to each other, but. It's something. It's people are grasping at something, and maybe it's that they didn't like the church they grew up in, but they still believe in God, or they still believe in you know that there are moral rules for human beings to follow that are greater than each of us. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's something there that eventually could be spun into a more uh, strenuous belief in truth, what you know, as uh, however defined. Yeah. But before we end it, I did want to talk about his essay "Why Freedom," which is, I think, sort of. He sort of summarizes the points of one of his other books in it. He talks about three functions of government that are necessary. And it's kind of the, uh, I think this is still something conservatives can think about today. It's defense against foreign enemies, 
preservation of internal order, and administration of justice between individuals. And so this is sort of the more li- libertarian end of things. It's like, that's all government should do. Okay, but why? I think he explains it pretty well. You know, like, why shouldn't it do better? Why shouldn't it, as we were talking about earlier, you know, why shouldn't it be the one who, who suggests virtuous living to people? He says, well, there's a danger to freedom, and a danger to freedom means a threat to virtue also, if anyone has more power than necessary. Now, the state's necessary to prever- preserve freedom from infringement by other people through force or through fraud. So that's why we have these three functions of the state, defense, internal order, and uh, justice, you know, the courts, basically. But this itself already represents kind of a, a dangerous concentration of power. And that's where you, like we, we were talking about the separation of powers. It's, that's why we separate them, because it's a lot. I mean, those three, that's only three things, but that's still a lot. You can, a government can run wild just with more powers. Mm-hmm. So he says, the thing about those three is those are the ones that require a monopoly on the use of force. Everything else can be performed by individuals or groups or you know, associations. You know, you don't need the government to force you to have a doctor's appointment, you know, but you do need, this is, well, do you need police? I, I mean, I think we both think you do. It's, yeah. an open, it's an open debate these days, but, you know, preservation of internal order is something that requires a monopoly on the use of force. You can't just have everybody being allowed to arrest everybody and shoot everybody and we're all arresting each other. So with that said, I think My- Meyer says that with that those three being necessary and those three already having so much power. We sh- part, so part of the idea of separating powers and federalism demands that we don't give the government any more after that. Mm-hmm. Like it's already enough. It's already so powerful with just these, these three basic natural aims, natural functions of government that we shouldn't give them any more. Yeah. It's good. I, I thought that was a good way of putting it, you know, and a good way of explaining why these things are government functions, but other things maybe shouldn't be. Yeah, I agree. That that was very interesting. What really popped out to me is as as conservatives and he has long conversations about this infusionism, you know, we kind of believe in a, a limits a limited government for sure. But preservation of internal order, I mean, <laughs> that, that, that's popped out in a way that it wouldn't have 6 months ago. Yeah. You know, like I guess as a conservative, I definitely believe in the use of government to preserve internal order and you know, mass chaos, like what we have complete anarchy in, in Portland right now, Mm -hmm. I just find so offensive. And, and I guess there's what popped out to me is like, it's not that I hate all government because some government is necessary. We need, we need police. I mean, we can't just return to the state of nature whenever we feel like it and, you know, take over a section of a city. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's no, ju- I mean, they say no justice, no peace, you know, which is an old chant, but there's no justice without the administration of justice. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you, if, if there's no cops, barbarism. Yeah. yeah. I mean, then the only, well, the, how do you have justice when anybody stronger can mess with you? You know, that's, that's why we have laws and that treat everyone as equal. It's crazy. And yet, you know, here it pops up every, every generation. There's always, some new rioters who want to remake the world and not learn from the lessons of the last ones. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, any closing thoughts? Uh, no, I would, I would say there's, like you said, at the beginning of the podcast, we, we may return to mayor cause we only read, we've only sampled a few of his essays here and then they were all, I think insightful about his time, but also about what we're talking about now. I mean, these, these debates are ongoing and I don't, I don't think there is an answer that's, 
you know, like you were saying, how much should we do in the promotion of virtue? There's not a, you can't put a number on it. The government should promote 25% virtue. You know, it's always going to be a balancing act. And, and, uh, that's, I think that's part of what's at the heart of Myers fusionism, but it also shows that why these two groups of traditionalists and libertarians belong together because they, yeah. they need each other and, uh, they make each other stronger. I think this reading really kind of highlights why we do this podcast in the first place, because mm-hmm. it, it did a great job of kind of identifying the, the fault lines, I guess, and some of the inconsistencies and the challenges within conservatism, the tugs and pulls, which I really appreciated. And maybe this would have been a good reading when we first started a couple of years ago, but yep. I felt like it was really timely now too, though, just because of the, I guess the fault lines have grown and it's becoming clearer. There is a battle for the post-Trump conservatism, you know, Republican Party, and how does that play out? It's gonna be fascinating. And if uh, if he wins, it could go a certain wins again. It could go a, a direction, and if he loses, it could go a different direction. And so it's it really is a, a kind of a tipping point. So good stuff. All right, that's Meyer. Catch us next time. <laughs>